Support for Hot Take comes from the Southern Environmental Law Center and its podcast, Broken Ground, with the latest season focusing on the story of how a Black community on the outskirts of Memphis came together to beat the odds and defeat a crude oil pipeline. Here, people hailing from all corners of the city and beyond join together to fight the environmental injustices and threats posed by the controversial Bahalia Pipeline. Listen to their story, now available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hot cakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana East Hegler. Last week, Amy, I logged into Twitter and it was like somebody had died. Yeah, apparently, some um, very old woman. Yeah. Very old. Very, very old. Very old. Surprised everyone by, by dying. Of natural causes. Lots of old women, too. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. I know there's some of some people are speculating on exactly what was the cause of her death, but like I'm I'm betting on time. I think it was just time. Father time, yeah. baby. Ninety six is old. That's a long life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 And so now we have. Well, we don't have shit because I don't live in a British Commonwealth. But some folks have a new king. There's a king now. King. A king. Yeah. King. King Charles. It's gonna take me a long time to get used to saying that. I don't know if I ever will. <laughs> I don't really know what the king does, what the monarchy does. I like I, I legit don't get it. But the only thing I could think of when I heard that she passed away, and I know this might be horrible, is when she had people come and look for oil underneath Windsor Castle. Oh, that's right. That's right. She did. Well, I mean, the the monarchy is is pretty much a figurehead, but you know, the British public pays for that shit. Yeah, British people pay taxes that go towards supporting the monarchy. And right now, people are really feeling the pinch because of uh, exactly what we're going to talk to our guest about today, which is like inflation and rising energy prices and all sorts of of economic impacts of of fossil fuel dependence. Exactly. Um, so, that, you know, they could use a break on those uh, royalties, wah, wah. Right. Um. And our guest is... <laughs> Based in the UK, so he'll very excited to get his uh, perspective. But before we go there, the new king, King Charles, is supposedly an environmentalist, but he's partnered with BP. He's a big fan yep. of population control and our alternative medicines, which we've seen how that can quickly turn the wrong way. Uh, it can go from yes. like maybe drink some chamomile tea to all of a sudden you don't need vaccines. Just eat a squash. So I don't know. What's mm-hmm. what's your opinion on this theory that our new environmentalist king is just on the rise? Well, two things. One, can you be a colonizer and a climate king? I don't think so. I don't think so I think either. The answer is no. No. And number two... I, w- I would like to know what sort of alternative dentistry he's embraced because, whoo, Amy! No thanks. Amy! Mean. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm this is sorry. the part where we have to remind you that Amy's husband is uh, Scottish um, and not crazy yeah. about the monarchy. No, no. I mean, I think, like, to be fair, I I think quite a lot of people in the UK think that the monarchy is outdated. It's this very costly, you know, kind of, I don't know, weird decorative thing. It doesn't really do anything, you know. And there's a lot of things that that money could be spent on that would actually make people's lives better. You know, like everyone's wondering how their new prime minister, Liz Truss, is going to possibly you know, cut taxes while also dealing with the energy crisis and inflation. And this would be an answer. I don't think she'll do it. But yeah, Yeah. it would. And if anything, the British monarchy is a symbol of the British empire and of colonialism. That's right. I would argue the biggest climate criminal in history is the British empire. So, you know, we all, I think we've said this on previous episodes before, but we always break down carbon footprints by country and never by empire, which really allows European countries, especially the UK or especially England, rather, to Mm -hmm. just get off scot-free. And if they had to account for their colonial colonial carbon footprint mm, wouldn't be no jewels in Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Let's just put it that That's way. Right. 
That's right. Honestly, I feel like if King Charles wants to be a climate hero, he could uh, pay reparations to former British colonies, yep. make sure that First Nations people get their land back from colonizers. Mm-hmm. Two great steps. Go for it, Charles. Right. And just and then just see where it goes <laughs> yeah. from there. You know, ride the wave. Yeah. But yeah, so today's guest is based in the UK. We're going to be talking to Akshat Rathi from Bloomberg yeah. News, who knows all things climate and finance. And yeah, really excited for this conversation. Super excited. We asked Akshat to walk us through all kinds of confusing acronyms and weird climate finance ideas Mm -hmm. uh, that we have been, you know, confused about for a long time. And he helped us out. So, yeah, we're excited. This should be a good primer for uh, the Ask a Scientist episode that we're planning coming up soon. So if you have not sent in your science-related questions, please go ahead and do that. Send them to hottake at cricket.com. Also, some of the, you know, subjects we talk about in this episode might be a little bit, you know, inflammatory. And if you have anything to say in response to that, please send your email to bkahn at protocol.com. That's right. Our friend Brian, ready and waiting to open your hate mail. Exactly. (laughs) All right. With that, I think it's time, Mary. It's time to talk about climate. Okay, welcome Akshat. Thank you so much for doing this. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're very excited to talk to you because we have a lot of questions about climate finance. What is it? How does it work? I don't know. What are numbers even? Yeah. (laughs) But first, I want to ask you how you got into climate journalism because I I don't think you had the most traditional path. I did not. I mean, I also think the... The real answer for why I got into climate journalism is Donald Trump. Really? So that recent? Oh, interesting. That was recent. I, you know, it's only really from 2016 onwards that I've been full-time focused on climate. Uh, but okay. just to take a few steps back. So I grew up in India. I did a, an undergraduate degree in India uh, in chemical engineering. And then I uh, was fortunate to get a place to do a PhD in chemistry at the University of Oxford. I was on track to become a professor. And then halfway through, I said, no, I cannot stay in the lab for all that time. I used to write as a hobby and I I was having too much fun writing uh, and staying in the world of ideas. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so what do you do with, you know, an education that is very science focused and a desire to want to write? And so I thought, okay, maybe science journalism would take me. And they did. And they let me write about science for a while. And that's when I was at courts when I was writing about science all kinds of topics from astronomy to microbiology when my science editor asked me, hey, this Donald Trump guy is talking about this thing called clean coal. What is it? And <laughs> so I said, that's a marketing phrase, but there is actually a real technology behind it. And he was like, that's fascinating. Does it work? I'm like, it works if you really want Does it to it? work. <laughs> uh, and so that became his excuse to say, okay, you should write about it. And then I ended up spending a year learning about carbon capture and wrote a series uh, that was very well received. And I've never looked back. I've stayed in climate since. Well, I'm a, we're like a big fan of everything you've been doing at Bloomberg. Oh, thanks. And, and, yeah. and you know, uh, same things back to you, Amy. Uh, you know, big, big fan of Drilled and all you've built. Uh, it's very hard to be doing what you do <laughs> as an independent journalist. And, you know, now you've built all these different uh, podcasts alongside. But, you know, it's, yeah, you've really shown a lot of people, uh, a, you know, light that they needed to see on this topic. Thanks. Thank you. Just a love fest here. <laughs> Well, okay. We one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about. Well, we wanted to talk to you about lots and lots of things, like we said, because there's a lot around this umbrella term of climate finance that is hard to understand and can be um, confusing for folks. But the the word that we've been hearing a lot uh, around here lately is inflation. So we wanted to kind of start there. First of all. I know this is a controversial question, but can you define inflation for us? I mean, there is a very basic, boring definition of inflation, which is that 
you take a basket of goods and it's decided, you know, to take a range of goods from different sectors and you calculate their price. Well, you, you sum up what you pay for them today and then in a month's time and then in a year's time. And the difference in the amounts you would pay for the same basket of goods over time is inflation. There'll be, you know, if you're paying $100 today and then next month you pay $101, well, that was 1% inflation in one month. And if you pay $110 next year, then it was 10% inflation in one year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're talking on September 12th, 2022, the energy prices in the UK have increased, what, 54% now? Is it 80%, more? I don't know. Actually. What's, what's happening where you are? Yeah. Yeah, you'll hear all sorts of numbers because that is also not quite a true number because the way energy prices work in the UK is uh, tied to price caps. So every quarter now, previously it used to be six months, every quarter they raise the cap, which is to say, what is a household going to pay max in that period for any amount of energy they use. So it's not a true price in the sense that, you know, there would be some households which can go crazy and and keep using energy, but their, their energy bills would still be capped. So it's not a good reflection of the true inflation that is happening. But yes, people are paying a lot more for energy than they used to. I mean, the best comparison I would say is you can, you know, maybe my house energy bills are a really good comparison because I live in a very energy efficient home. It was built in 2016, which in the UK is rare because UK has a lot of old homes. Uh, new homes are, are rarer. And so when new homes were built, they were built with higher energy efficiency standard. And so, you know, my electricity bill used to be £30, uh, give or take $40, $45 uh, every month. And now it's £60. It's twice. It's already wow, twice. It's and we've wow. not even gone into and the winter. And how quickly did that happen? Um, so £30 was last year and £60, it rose to £60 over the last couple of months. So, yeah, and it's set to rise again. Wow. What's crazy is that that sounds hella cheap from here because, <laughs> like, my power bill is, like, getting up to $500 a month, no joke. Oh, my God, Mary. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Not every single month, but I have seen $500 in a month. I've actually seen higher than that. That's crazy. And I'm not doing anything crazy over here. Well, if you talk about bills, I think you're probably Americans pay a lot more for your broadband for the same amount of, you know, gigabyte per gigabyte per second or yeah. GBPS you'd get per per month, you probably pay a lot more for your mobile phone, uh, but then you pay a lot less on your gasoline bills. Yeah. Well, this isn't just America. This is like New Orleans, which is crazy because of it being such a oil and gas and fossil fuel hub. Like, can a bitch get a break? We're already breathing this shitty air and this <laughs> shitty water and like bearing the brunt of the fossil fuel industry. Can a bitch get like a, you know, <laughs> right. a little price cut, a little discount? <laughs> Very true. Very true. Um, yeah. So actually, let's talk about the role that energy prices in general are playing in in the inflation that we're seeing right now, because, right, it's not just the cost of energy in people's homes. It's also causing the cost of goods to increase across the board. And that's mostly being driven by the the like what's happening with Russia. Right. I mean, um, <laughs> but like, actually, I um. I feel like I'm constantly debunking this, and now I'm going to ask you to do it. How how much are these gas prices and energy prices we're seeing actually being driven by real supply and demand, and how much is, is like market magic? I mean, the prices are the prices. This is to say you are paying a certain amount for the natural gas you're buying either through pipes or through LNG tankers, big ships that come to the shore and, and you can get gas from. But the market magic here is basically that there is trading that happens around a limited amount of um, natural gas that's available. And traders are making essentially bets based on whether they think 
that kind of supply will be available in the future or not. If they think it's not going to be available in the future, they'll pay a lot more for it right now. If they think it's going to be available in the future, then they're going to pay a lot less. And so what you do get is huge swings, right? The prices went up a lot because people are thinking, oh my God, it's going to be a really bad winter. Russia has just turned off uh, the gas pipeline forever and and the gas prices went up. And then suddenly the government said, no, we're going to subsidize uh, energy bills and we're going to bring in reform to the energy market and we're going to make sure that this is not the kind of prices we pay. And suddenly they fall. So that is the sort of like market magic we are thinking here where prices go up and down and up and down. But that's day to day. What is not in doubt is that the broad trend is that gas prices have been going up. So if you move the spikes around and you normalize that over the last six months, over the last nine months, they have gone up and they've gone up a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know that, that the response in the U.S. and in some other countries as well has been to you know, try to rapidly increase the production and in the case of the U.S. more so the infrastructure around moving more LNG to Europe, which of course takes a considerable amount of time. <laughs> it's not a it's not a rapid solution. So I'm curious just what what you think about that, the way that this crisis has kind of spurred a huge embrace of, of LNG again and kind of a build out of, of infrastructure that's going to be around for a while. Yeah, it's certainly uh, not a crisis that can be met very easily with short-term solutions. So if you want to build an LNG terminal, you're talking three to five years at least. Uh, if you want to build a pipeline, it's about the same time, depending on the length of your pipeline. If you want to find a new field, you know, it's going to take even longer to find where that gas is and then tapping it and making sure you're able to extract the gas in the right way. Um, none of this solves what is the problem today, which is supply isn't available. So there is a rush from politicians in Europe, but also here in the UK, which now has a new government, well, yet another new government, that is saying we're going to tap in every last drop of oil and every... Uh, last amount of gas that we can draw from the North Sea, which is the field that the UK has direct access to within its own shores. But that stuff is not helping today. The stuff that will help right now immediately is doing some of the subsidies work that the government is doing, which is capping the prices outright, but really insulating homes. If you cut people's uh, need for energy, you're going to cut their bills too. And, you know, short term, also like renewable build out is faster. You know, you could build a solar plant in, in 18 months uh, along with all the electricity infrastructure you need for it. So that's faster, but it's still not next month. It still takes time. And of course, all of this is happening at a time when because of COVID and how the economy is rebalancing, there's a shortage of both goods and the people who can move in place and install these goods. So it's multiple layers that have really added up and there is no real good short-term fix that solves the problem as we want it. Um, and that means we have to cut our energy use, which is the last lever that we can pull. So that's why you're seeing Germans talk to industry and say, do you really need all that gas? Can you make do with less of it, please? And these conversations are then had with industry after industry after industry to make a plan that, okay, say we run out of gas, who are the people who we can shut first? And who are the people we cannot shut because we can't let people die freezing? <laughs> it's just so crazy to hear all this because, like, we had, well, our governments had so much notice about both climate change and the finite nature of fossil fuels. Like, we didn't have to get to this point had we invested in renewables sooner. And I feel like one of the arguments I've often heard is that we can't act on climate because it'll upset the delicate balance of the economy. And it's kind of like used as this tradition excuse not to transition to renewables. What do, you, what do you make of that argument or say to it? And honestly, are you even hearing it as much as you used to. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, 
another, I'll take a UK example just because the numbers are large and, and these are coming through. So the UK just has capped its energy prices. Uh, there are some estimates out there which would say because of that, the UK government is going to have to pay £150 billion pounds over the next year. That's like 5% wow. of GDP. Wow. You know, we're talking $200 billion here. If the government knew five years ago that this is the kind of crisis that it was going to face, it would have, and you know, we knew with certainty this is the crisis that's coming, then it would have spent that £150 billion, maybe over the five years, £30 billion each year, done all the things that we say it needs to do, which is insulate, build renewables, and you would not have had this crisis. But of course, the only time governments really act is when there is one. And so as much as we think this is a climate problem in the sense that governments should know better, they should act faster, they've been doing that, not just in the climate sphere, but pretty much everything else. And so should we expect anything else from them anyway? Like it's, it's a, you know, there are, there are some governments that are more effective and they do a little more. Maybe the Germans, maybe the Swedes, maybe the Nordic countries have more planning and more uh, buffer room to deal with uh, extremes. But the UK has not had that. It's so weird to me because I feel like even just from purely like an energy and national security standpoint, like there was plenty of notice that Russia was going to ultimately be a problem in exactly this way. Too. <laughs> you know, this is not this is not a huge surprise. Even just this invasion of Ukraine, like it was foreshadowed by what happened with Crimea, what, five, six years ago. Uh, there was, you know, saber rattling around Ukraine for at least a year before Putin invaded. So, like, I, I just feel like there's been any number of very clear signs that this is exactly what would happen. And yet here we are. Um, you know? Yeah, I mean, and imagine that that's happening when the U.S. government has a $700 billion spend on the Defense Department whose, I hope, the entire job is to ensure national security, not just of U.S., but of its allies. And so if they can mess up to this extent of, you know, well, we kind of knew in November they were like, warning, this is going to happen. But obviously Crimea was 2014, right? Um, and so if they are making these mistakes, should we also then blame all the climate policy wonks who don't get $700 billion a year? Right, right. It's really funny, too, because it reminds me like what's happening right now reminds me a lot of what happened in the like the mid 70s OPEC crisis. And the response then was massively ratchet back oil and gas consumption. And then the industry's response to that, like once once supply kind of normalized was was to do everything they could to get people consuming again. So um, I don't know. It's just weird, like how much we repeat these cycles. <laughs> it's true. But it's also one of those things where to me, this is why climate finance or yeah. finance in general, you know, climate finance is just a phrase to say money that might go to climate causes. But Finance in general is so important to understand because a lot of what is driving, not everything, but a lot of what is being driven is being driven by money. And so what happened in the 1970s was there was an oil crisis. Suddenly there was no energy, so government stepped in, uh, did some short-term fixes. All companies had a identity mm -hmm. crisis. They started investing in nuclear and solar and batteries. Yeah. This is all Exxon, by the way. And they actually made some progress. But as soon as they could make money the way they used to make money, they were like, ah, why bother? They just went back to it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is we should eat the rich. <laughs> what I'm saying is we should make sure we understand where money goes and yeah. why it goes there. Because without understanding money flows and the hold it has on everything around us, we won't really tackle right, this problem. Right, right. So you're saying follow the money. I'm saying eat the rich. Uh, we're going to say more <laughs> things after the ad break. Hi. 
Hot Take is brought to you by Outer Known. Sustainability is not something Outer Known takes lightly. It's literally why the brand exists. Outer Known offers women's and men's clothing where style meets sustainability. Outer Known takes care of the planet by using only organic, recycled, and regenerated materials. And they take care of the people who make their clothes by providing safe working conditions and a fair living wage. I feel like some people could learn a lesson from that, right, Amy? <coughs> Elon Musk. Yeah. Oh, God, is he making clothes now? <laughs> no, but um, he doesn't think treating your workers fairly is part should be part of, like, uh, sustainability, apparently. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, well, he's wrong. Um, he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I've received a couple of pieces from Outer Known. They are these really cute jackets. And it's finally mm. starting to get close to the time to where it's appropriate and necessary to wear a jacket in New Orleans. I don't mm. want to alarm anybody, but I've heard that next week some of the mornings are going to be in the 60s. When I saw a puffy jacket at 62 degrees, I was like, oh, I'm home. Um, <laughs> but I'm very excited to wear the Outer Known clothes when when the time finally comes. So yeah. go to OuterKnown.com today and enter the code HOT at checkout and you'll get 25% off your full price order. That's OuterKnown.com, O-U-T-E-R-K-N-O-W-N.com. And remember to use the code HOT at checkout for 25% off. Check them out today, OuterKnown.com. And don't forget promo code HOT for 25% off. That's O-U-T-E-R-K-N-O-W-N.com and use the code HOT. Promo code HOT. Support for a Hot Take comes from the Southern Environmental Law Center and its podcast, Broken Ground. In the latest season, listeners journey to Boxtown, Tennessee, a black neighborhood on the edge of Memphis, tucked into a bend of the Mississippi River. This community has a rich history and its residents cherish their deep ties to the land. Here, people young and old, hailing from all corners of the city and beyond, came together to fight the environmental injustices and threats to their quality of life posed by a controversial crude oil pipeline. In the course of telling this story, Broken Ground uncovers the stories of the community who pushed back against the project through grassroots organizing, legal advocacy, and unwavering determination. Find out how a crude oil pipeline went from imminent to canceled from the people on the front lines. Listen to their story in the latest season, now available wherever you get your podcasts, or stream it directly at brokengroundpodcast.org. That's a good lead into to ESG too, actually, is like because I feel like a lot of what companies say they are investing in is different from what they're actually investing mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. But let's spell out the acronym, though. Environmental social governance, which is a big technical term for what? Well, it's all adjectives as well. It's not even like the acronym makes sense on its own. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it is probably the only acronym that is all adjectives that is so widely used. It's so weird. It's so weird. Um, Yeah. So what is it? So, yeah, one of y'all, what is it? I mean... As, as Mary said, it is environmental social governance factors and the uh-huh. factors there, which again is like a very weird term, but the factors there is to say, I mean, this movement sort of began in the 60s and 70s post the Vietnam War, which was to say people with money move the world. So people with money who think they have morals and want to do the right thing should use that money to do the right thing. I mean, really very broadly sort of highfalutin uh, purist idea, right? But when then it comes to making the case for it on a technical level, uh, the case that we make now in the 21st century is that there are financial metrics that companies have, which is revenues and profits and debt and all these other numbers that are reported on a quarter-to-quarter basis and are used by all these analysts to make decisions whether to invest in a stock or to divest from a stock. Those metrics are only one side of the equation of whether a company is a good company doing what it needs to be doing for the long-term financial health of that company. There are all these non-financial metrics, which is what ESG stands for, environmental, social, and governance metrics, that also 
should, in theory, factor into whether this company has a future. I mean, to make it very concrete, take an oil company. An oil company's entire business model is to supply fossil fuels to a world that currently demands fossil fuels. In a future where climate change is taken very seriously, there will be no demand for fossil fuels. So what then is the role of an oil company? And so the because we can't capture that in a financial measure today, these ESG folks say, we're going to create this ESG metrics for you, which is going to track whether the company has a future in a world that's going to be affected by climate change and other impacts. And we'll tell you whether those non-financial metrics can help you invest or divest from a company. You wrote this awesome story with Cam Simpson and Sigel Kishan for Bloomberg called the ESG Mirage. And in it, you talk about MSCI, this ESG rating company. So I want to have you talk a little bit about, you know, what is this rating company and why is ESG so kind of dependent on, on these ratings? Right, so I just built the Lego block of ESG for you, and now I'm going to do. Going to kick it, take it I'm apart. Just yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so right, there's this theory, which sounds appealing, right? It's cool. It would be nice for companies to be caring about not just their finance, but also about the world, and maybe caring about the world will help them make more money. Great. All stockholders would go. Of course, that makes complete sense. The trouble is, how do you really measure it? And so companies have been created to try and understand what exactly are non-financial metrics, how to measure them, and how, when you once have measured them, how to combine all that information and give an investment broker a sign of whether this company is worth investing in or not. And that is what ESG rating companies do. So they take... I don't know, 50, 80, 100 metrics. And these are how many women do you have on your board? So that would count for your S metric. How many emissions do you have on your carbon balance sheet? That would count on your E metrics. Is your chairman and the CEO the same person? That would count as your governance metric because a chairman and a CEO should be (laughs) split typically so that they can govern the company better. And so you do all these numbers and you you produce all these reports around. Now that we have these 80 metrics, not every stockholder is going to be able to look at that. So they come up with a single measure. In the case of MSCI, which is an ESG ratings company, the most popular one, they come up with ratings that are double A, double B. Uh, this is speaking very much to the language that stockholders know of because there's an entire industry of financial credit rating where they say whether a company is going to be able to pay back the money that it has taken from banks. Um, and that credit rating system is also like this, AAA and B. And so they replicate that system and they give you that number. And, and then you, as a stockbroker, probably feels confident. Okay, this company is not a good ESG company because it's C. And this ESG company is good because it's AA. And so I'm going to pick a AA over a C. And you go home and you feel good about yourself. The trouble is they are not telling you what those metrics actually mean. So ESG, as it's marketed by MSCI, is to do good in the world. That the companies that are higher ESG rating are doing good in the world. But really what they're measuring is whether these ESG metrics would affect the bottom line of these companies, whether having higher emissions would lead to lower profits because you are in Europe and carbon prices are rising, or whether having fewer women on the board will mean that you will come under an SEC investigation because now there is a quota for how many women should be on the board. It's really counting the risk that you you as a company is facing on these metrics rather than counting whether you are doing any good It does not reward, for example, companies that are cutting their emissions. Uh, You know, we have an example of McDonald's in there whose emissions continue to rise and its ESG rating continues to improve. And that's exactly (laughs) not what the marketing (laughs) is saying should be happening. But it's what's happening. Right, right. Wow. 
I want to just read the subhead for this um, story because I it like really jumps out at you. It says MSCI, the largest ESG rating company, doesn't even try to measure the impact of a corporation on the world. It's all about whether the world might mess with the bottom line, which is essentially what you just explained. But um, but yeah, it's really like stark um, how how much those things are decoupled here. Um, so I'm curious, that, like, if, whether you think that this, the the SEC's proposed climate risk guidance will help with that or not. I have never been a big white wine person, and especially not in the fall. But after becoming a member of First Leaf, I'm a convert. First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery, and every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at 100 different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. So the SEC has proposed rules to try and rein in some of the wild west of what ESG has become because there are very few standards on how certain things are measured, how once you've measured them, you should interpret them. Um, Honestly, any standard right now coming from a real regulator would go the distance because it's such a mess. You know, if you are a small... Yeah. Are these all like self-measured and self-reported too? The, like the companies just do it themselves and... Correct. Like in, But that's true of finance too, right? Like if you're a company and you are reporting on your revenue and your profits and your losses, you have to do that on a self-reported basis. Except if you lie on them, you get in trouble. The SEC will come after you and you have huge hefty fines and there is a real... A stick for not doing it poorly. Whereas there's none of that here in the ESG world. So yes, it's all self-reported. All these metrics are self-reported. Some of them are just uh, algorithms calculating it based on I don't know what. But that in itself is not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is there is no real stick for getting it wrong. The stick is 
that the investors might have a lower return. But if you are using your ESG metrics alongside 10 other factors to make a decision, you won't be able to tell whether it was the ESG metric. That was the reason you got a lower return. And all those analysis anyway take months or years after the returns are in the bank. So there is no self-correcting mechanism. That's why having a regulator is so important. Yeah, regulation, not just incentive, right? Okay, this is really interesting because I've been looking into, there's a a sort of recent thing that's been um, bubbling up in the US. I don't know if you're seeing it in the UK too, that is a, a sort of a pushback against ESG which is being branded by some folks on the right as quote unquote woke capital. <laughs> it's hard for me to say that without laughing. Cause like how, I mean, okay. Uh, but, but I mean, there's double, there's double anthropomorphism happening there. Yes. Right. It's just ridiculous, but it's, it's really interesting because for a really long time, oil companies were very into ESG because it was such an easy greenwashing tool, right? Like they could say, oh, we're like, I mean, the same way they do in a lot of their ads, like we're part of the transition, we're investing in all these renewables, this, that, the other. Um, and it really, you see this backlash emerge right alongside the SEC putting out this proposed rule. Well, starting to talk about it last, like early last year. Um, And now that they actually have something on paper that they're getting public comment for and all of that, like it's really ramped up. And I have a, a feeling that it's directly related to you know, this actually becoming real so that like it becomes something that might mean less money for them instead of access to easy capital. Yeah, I mean, this kind of thing is taking off because there's always some grain of truth that is then twisted into making something sound much bigger than it really is. So the ESG Mirage investigation that you brought up that was published in December last year, that was in the introduction of the most recent Tesla sustainability report, which then Elon Musk used as a way of saying, look, Right. We, Tesla, don't get an ESG rating that is high. And that is for some would argue very good reason because Tesla does not report its emissions properly, does not report on its uh, employee um, management techniques properly. It has the same CEO and chairman. And there are all sorts of ESG issues that are quite real, which is why uh, Tesla doesn't get a high ESG rating, but Musk is mad because, of course, I'm making electric mm-hmm. cars, and you know, am I not saving the planet? Is that not what ESG is supposed to do? Well, it turns out ESG is counting the risk to the right. company, not really whether you're doing good or not. So I don't know what you're getting angry about, but he will use that rhetoric to make this case that oh, surely all of ESG is broken. Right. Well, right. maybe it is, but yeah. not for the reasons you think it is. So everybody is getting this, like, they are taking the stance that helps them, but beating on ESG um, because it's easy to beat mm. upon because there are no regulators around. Hmm. Well, just quick note, every time that you mention Elon Musk, there's bound to be some muskrats who want to argue with you. So please send your comments about that to B-K-A-H-N <laughs> at protocol.com, um, care of Brian Kahn. <laughs> oh, He's our hate mail fantastic. Um, curator. He actually loves yeah. it. So. <laughs> Yeah. We will get it. Trust me. I'll get a text message. But yeah. 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 Send it there. Um, Okay. So the other... Oh. Well, as if if Brian doesn't get enough ideas to write climate stories. (laughs) Exactly. Um, The other part of this this whole backlash has been... It's been really, really interesting because you're seeing... So what's happening here is that a lot of the same um, foundations and think tanks and whatnot that invested in climate denial in the early days are investing in um, in this sort of like anti-ESG thing. So you have Heritage Foundation. There's a group called Consumers Research that has been kind of active in climate denial spaces for a long time. Lots of kind of the, the usual suspects, and they're particularly investing in a group called the State Financial Officers Federation, which 
is a group of state treasurers in the U.S. Um, they're mostly Republican and Libertarian, and they never, ever talked about climate until, like, 2021. <laughs> but all of a sudden, it's like they're raison d'etre is to fight against ESG. It's just, it's like an attack on the free market. It's really interesting because they have quite a bit of power, it turns out, in their states. And what they are doing is pushing policy that bars their state from doing business with any company that has an anti-fossil fuels stance. So this is how BlackRock has now been kicked out of West Virginia and Texas uh, the West Virginia state treasurer had a, a great dad joke about this, Mary, that you'll appreciate. He said, the only black rock we like in West Virginia is coal. That's not funny. Uh, <laughs> 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 yes. So it's it's really, it's interesting. And then you also... Then you also have this whole wave of venture capitalists like Peter Thiel, Vivek Ramaswamy and Strive Capital that are out there saying, you know, this ESG. It's really interesting, the argument that they're making, because I feel like it, it really doesn't it really doesn't address the actual problem with ESG at all. In fact, like the problem that it addresses is the only thing that ESG kind of does already. So their argument is like that ESG is putting quote-unquote woke concerns over capital interests, when actually the biggest flaw with ESG is it definitely does not do that. Um, <laughs> you know? So anyway, there's there's just a lot kind of like... Yeah, I mean, that's it's like muddling... It, it's muddling things a lot, right? Um, exactly. The point yeah. they're trying to make is the person with money from... Us, so a lot of black. What BlackRock does is manages other people's money, right? It'll take pension funds' money and then manage it for them. You, BlackRock, have a duty, and this is called a fiduciary duty, to make as much money with the money that you've been given as possible. That is your job, right? And BlackRock say, yes, that's our job. So now BlackRock says, look, to make as much money as we would like to make. We recognize that fossil fuel industry does not have as bright a future as you think because we are in this crisis called climate change. And so we have to figure out a way in which we can invest in the right places and continue to make the fiduciary duty that we have been given to make money. And now they're turning around like, no, 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 no. Oh, wait. Yes. If investing in fossil fuels means making less money, do that. Do that, BlackRock. That would be the right thing. <laughs> so, like, the BlackRock is stuck in this, like, hard place. It's really funny because BlackRock is now taking it from all sides. Like, mm. the left doesn't like BlackRock because they're still invested in plenty of coal and other types of fossil fuels. And now the right is getting, like, all up in arms and being, like, those liberal elites at BlackRock are trying to force energy transition on <laughs> Yeah. Well, I just did not expect to have BlackRock on my sympathy bingo for 2022. Yeah. And this also, it, it <laughs> makes me remember the uh, the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with Abram Lustgarten about, um, you know, global debt markets. And these financial institutions are not woke at all. Like, honestly, they're damn near comatose. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't feel sympathy. I just don't. The kind of interesting thing, too, is that and this will kind of lead into the other thing we wanted to talk to you about, which is the way that the media covers this stuff, is that the media has kind of been running with this criticism a bit, too. Like I've been seeing the head of the SEC um, kind of get grilled on different news shows about whether you know, these this climate risk guidance is like running a field of what the SEC is actually tasked to do. And now just, of course, I think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago, the, the attorney general of West Virginia has filed his formal public comment about the SEC's risk guidance invoking this thing called the major questions doctrine, which is what the West Virginia versus EPA Supreme Court case hinged on, which is basically this idea that any government agency that tries to do anything that's not explicitly um, kind of 
detailed out in its powers from Congress is is actually like doing more than it should be doing. The SEC, of course, has said uh, our whole role is to like provide consistency and help you know, stockholders figure out where to invest their money. And this falls well within that purview. (laughs) But, but I think, again, I just feel like I don't know that, I don't know whether it's that like not enough journalists in the finance space know enough about ESG and the nuanced like reasons why it's messy um, to, to ask good questions here or what, but we're going to talk to you all about that stuff right after another ad break. Hot Take is brought to you by Birch. So, Mary, I don't know about you, but I, um, the older I get, the more, like, obsessed with mattresses I've become. (laughs) Yeah. I realize that, like, my back just needs a certain type of mattress. Yeah, (laughs) your spine doesn't bounce back. Once you pass, like, I don't know, for me, 32. Yeah, yeah, totally. Birch mattresses are the answer to all that. They're also stylish comfortable and environmentally conscious it's a non-toxic mattress they're made right here in the u.s and they're crafted with natural and organic materials that have been sustainably sourced because mattresses for the most part are um, don't have any of those things going on <laughs> oh really yeah that seems bad that seems bad. bad it's like bad. how do you yeah. sleep at night that's a good one that's a good one i have had my birch mattress for a few months now and it's definitely helping my back it's making me sleep better and like fall asleep easier and then i just feel more refreshed in the morning i don't have this giant knot in the middle of my back so um beautiful you know 10 stars birch is giving 400 dollars off $400 off. That's a lot of dollars. That's a lot of dollars. All mattresses. And you get two free eco rest pillows at birchliving.com slash hot. I got to tell you, these pillows are something else. I love them. I know. She won't shut up about it. She literally really loves these pillows. I do. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like picky about pillows and I find they're either always like too soft or too firm or not soft enough. Um, These ones are perfect. (laughs) What are you, the princess and the pea? Yes. Yes, I am. And I'm telling you, these pillows are perfect. (laughs) And you get two free ones. That's $400 off plus two free eco rest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Go to birchliving.com slash hot. Hot Take is brought to you by Haya. Uh, Kids' vitamins are a friggin' racket these days, I have to tell you. They are basically gummy bears masquerading as vitamins, um, which, like, I don't mind for myself, but, you know, I'm like, the whole reason I bought these was to give my kids something healthy, and they have, like, almost as much sugar as candy. Uh, that's why Haya was created. It's a pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin. They're kind of like Smarties. Do you remember those candies? Uh, like remember candy them from necklaces? like yeah. I remember morning. them from like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Never. Yeah, they're forgot. like they're like that. Um, similar kind of flavors. My kids love them. And instead of being full of sugar and gross junk. They are formulated with the help of nutritional experts. So they're pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies, then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals. And we've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You get 50%, 50 5-0, 50% off your first order. To claim that deal, you have to go to HayaHealth.com slash hot. This deal is not available on their regular website. You got to go to the special website. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash hot. And get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. I don't know if you have seen this, Akshat, but like I keep seeing TV news presenters in particular kind of say to um, SEC officials, well, isn't this outside of your jurisdiction to 
address climate risk guidance? And I wonder what you think of that as a question. Yeah, it's a interesting question. I mean, as far as I understand, and the U.S. system to me is more foreign, sitting here in London. But, uh, you know, financial regulators, one of the jobs that they have is to ensure financial stability. And climate change is a problem of such a scale that it will have an impact on financial stability if, if it's not already. Look at what's happening in Pakistan, right? A third of the country was underwater. It's going to have tens of billions of dollars worth of damages, maybe even more, on its books. It's already debt-ridden. It's already taken a ton of loans from development banks that it has to repay. If climate change is not affecting financial stability in their country, I don't know what else is affecting financial stability there. And so the financial regulators here are, and this is not just the SEC, but also the Bank of England, and there's a you know central banks so or the Federal Reserve in in the U.S. Um, they are they are got together and they have also agreed that it is such a big problem that we need to understand it and then do what we need to to ensure financial stability. And so, if you can't let government regulators do the job that they've been assigned then it's only going to be trouble, if not now, in the future. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you think about sort of the state of financial reporting as it intersects with climate in general. Um, I, For my part, I, I pretty much only see you guys and FP doing anything in this realm. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I don't know what you think of it and like where where things need to improve, what you would like to see more of in this space. Yeah, I don't know what it is that may have ended up happening for me to stay with business journalism all through my career in journalism. So after finishing my PhD, the first place I got an internship at where I feel like I got a master's in journalism was The Economist, a business publication. And then I worked at Quartz, another business publication. Then I came to Bloomberg. And so I've, uh, you know, it may not, I may not have the the clearest idea having not worked at a non-financial, non-business journalism uh, publication to know why it is so dire that other publications don't get it. I mean, I can make a few guesses. One is that the human story, which is politics, is just so much more interesting and easier to write and make interesting because you're talking about people and you're talking about fights and you're talking about backstabbing each other. And finance is not that because you're talking about numbers and you're talking about terms like PE ratio and um, you're talking about ESG acronyms that people are, are still trying to understand. And in some way, it may be that finance has shouted itself in these acronyms to try and avoid scrutiny mm. uh, from all mm-hmm. of public. And that might be one reason why not every publication does as much finance journalism as is possible. But I think so, you know, like, and I'm sure there there are journalism professors who would probably have much better understanding of why this is the case, uh, that finance doesn't, finance and business, and not just finance, but finance and business does not make it to the big papers, the big media houses as much as it should. For where I stand and where I have been doing my journalism, it's absolutely crucial, I feel like, to understand where money goes because without understanding that, you really don't know where power lies. You really don't know where things are going, what things need to change, and how you, will you change them? Because it is just the sad truth that money does play a, a fundamental role in everything around yeah. us. I, I do kind of feel like the separation of business journalism and climate change allows, you know, you see all these articles about Shell and all these oil companies, but with no connection to climate change whatsoever. It's like business section is the only time where you see them report on fossil fuel companies, but without any, usually, <laughs> obviously, actually, you do a much better job of this, but in a lot of places, there's no context of climate change whatsoever. I think you might be right that like, I think you might be onto something that like, there's, there's maybe, I don't think that the finance sector is in a big rush to have a bunch of journalists all up in its grill, you know, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, 
I don't think that like, yeah, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of it has been made kind of inscrutable. And I say that, I mean, maybe this is where some of my expertise might help. So I did science journalism before I did climate journalism, and now I do climate and business and finance. But in science journalism, there was the same problem because there was a ton of science that was happening in the world and the science was getting more and more complicated because as our understanding of the world grew, it became more sophisticated. And so uh, science journalists had a problem of not being able to explain it to the uh, wider audience. And here in the UK, there was a crisis that precipitated into really good science journalism. There was a researcher who claimed that vaccines caused autism and got somehow his paper. Oh, I remember this story. Yes, yes. Andrew Wakefield was his name, got that study published. And then journalists wrote up the study because it was published in a reputable journal, despite almost entire community against it, saying this is not good science. There are lots of problems here. And for the science journalists who covered that it was a moment of crisis, which is we cannot, because obviously what resulted from that is vaccine hesitancy, which has lingered on and has led to probably hundreds of thousands of deaths. You know, I haven't seen a a, a recent analysis. And we should note that he um, walked that paper back like fairly quickly after it was published. No, that it was. Well, the journal retracted it uh, after some time, not not very quickly. Uh, but, but you know, that crisis precipitated into what then became a training ground for good science journalism. And so I was a graduate student here studying in chemistry while, you know, the, the sort of uh, downstream impacts of this crisis were being felt. And there was a, a desire for more science-minded people to do journalism. And so I was able to write for publications and for student journalism and get myself into The Economist. And I found many other people who are here with PhDs in in sciences who are writing for uh, news outlets. And they are doing the hard work of actually translating the complexity for the audience. And that, you know, has had a real benefit in the COVID crisis here in the UK. There is no vaccine hesitancy of that kind anymore. And so it must have saved lives. But that kind of crisis helped make that happen. Maybe we need one of those for finance. Maybe people need to realize, oh, my God, this is the thing that is, you know, partially running the world, even if politicians on the top are fighting and squabbling all the time. It is the money that and where it goes really determining how the future is being shaped right now. And we need to look beyond all the acronyms. We need to understand the theory. We need to talk to the right experts, and we need mm-hmm. to report the hell out of it. And that, I think, would be a really good thing for uh, bo- both our understanding of the world as mm-hmm. it exists, but also for climate. So you soon will be coming out with your own podcast, right? Yes, it's uh, this week, actually. I mean, uh, we, we we just recorded our uh, first episode that's okay. going to come out on Thursday. So um yeah it's um it's a very exciting time yeah um by the time our this episode comes out your first episode will be ready to to listen to so what can you tell us about it so the podcast is called zero and um it talks about the tactics and technologies needed to get to a world of zero emissions and it's going to try at least in the first season first few weeks uh of uh the uh, the podcast get one person uh, that I interview uh, a thinker uh, of some stature, of some experience in this field about a topic that affects how we think about getting to zero emissions. And my goal is to try and both understand you know, how that person came to be doing that, but really give people a flavor for topics like venture capital or climate laws or all this buzz around innovation Or what the hell just happened in Australia, by the way, now that they have a climate prime minister? Like, I'm trying to make sure that people get not just the top headline, oh, this thing happened, but really grapple with how do we think about this thing that just happened? And how do we fit it in a mental model that will allow us to think about all the the Lego blocks that are going to be needed to get to a world of zero emissions? Because 
without getting to zero emissions, we won't have a stable climate. And then we all know what happens. Very, very bad things. Very, very bad. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we look forward to, to listening to more of it. Yeah, it's going to come every Thursday. Mm. It'll be weekly, um, forever, I hope. I, I mean, at least for a year that I know of. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, this is the first time I'm hosting a podcast. I'm, I'm learning from you guys uh, here and um, would appreciate any feedback you may have on on uh, talking all this climate. Welcome to the Thunderdome. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's awesome Uh, climate and finance and technology and business uh, and solutions my goal is to try and really figure out understand the problems but then figure out okay then what do we do next Mm -hmm. yeah well I'm excited to listen Um, I hope our listeners will will go head over and subscribe to your feed too and thank you so much for coming on the show this was really great Thank you. Oh, this was fun. So thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Hot Take is a Crooked Media production. It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jules Bradley. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thamali Kodakara is our consulting producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take, sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com, and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.